today, I want to talk about the spiritual cost, the emotional cost, and why it's worth it. So I want, I want to start by just to, to kind of, let's, let's just hit the shock factor right on. If, if, I'm, here, if I'm here telling you that, that being a missionary is costly, it's emotionally and spiritually costly, it hurts, how would you, like, I just want you to begin, I want to begin by just asking you to imagine, how would you respond if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I'm going to hurt you today. Are you okay with that? How would you respond to that? Somebody said, I, I'm, I'm going to hurt you. Is that okay? Johnny, how would you respond? Okay, no. Um, what other responses might we make? I'm going to hurt you. Is that okay? What else might you do? Okay, run. Who said run? Good idea, Lisa. Run. Um, say it again. Oh, so you're going to hurt them first. That may or may not be a good idea, depending on whether they're bigger than you. But, okay, that's an option. What else? Ask why. Okay. All right. But, but probably very few of us would say, great idea, please. Right? That's just not what we would do. Okay, now I want you to kind of reimagine the scenario, but with a twist, all right? So instead of just some random person, what, what you have is you're actually speaking to your doctor. And you're in the examination room, you're in there for a checkup, and the doctor says, look, do you remember that time when you broke your arm as a kid? And you're like, oh, yeah. Like, he's like, here's the thing. When you broke your arm as a kid, it didn't heal right. The bone's actually crooked. And it's healed crooked. So you have, you have a part of your body that is, it feels most of the time like it's okay, but there's actually something very deeply broken in there. And it's never going to get better. And in fact, it's going to cause you a lot more significant problems later on in life. Infections, disease, perhaps chronic pain. The only way for us to make sure that doesn't happen is to re-break it today. And so... I have to break your arm today here in my office. It will hurt, but the pain will actually be good for you in the long run. And then the doctor says, I'm going to hurt you. Is that okay? That puts a whole different spin on it, doesn't it? Now, you might still be saying, but but pain hurts and I'm not looking forward to that. Fair enough. But there's a big difference if somebody says, I'm going to hurt you. Is that okay? With no good reason. Then if somebody comes to you, somebody you respect and trust, and says, I need to hurt you for a good purpose, how would you respond if your doctor said that? Anybody ever actually have that happen? I have an aunt. She's still alive. She's older than me. No surprise. When she was a kid, at one point, she had an accident and broke her nose, and it was crooked. And she went home, and she said, I don't want to live with a crooked nose for the rest of my life. And it was already starting to heal. So do you know what she did to herself? She straightened it. Yeah. Imagine how much that would hurt. But for the rest of her life, she had a straight nose, right? So it was worth it to her. I think this is a great analogy to use when we're talking about the cost of serving God as a missionary. The emotional, the spiritual cost of serving Jesus as a missionary is real, and it is painful. Uh, Probably many of you have sung at least once in your life the hymn, a mighty fortress is our God, right? We, we sing it here at Covenant at least once a year on Reformation Sunday toward the end of October. How many of you have sung that song before? A mighty fortress is our God. Yeah, if you don't raise your hands, I'll start singing. Just a joke. Um, 
toward the end of that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, there is a line where, where, this is written by Martin Luther. He says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And that, that first line especially, let goods and kindred go. We, we sing it, we sing it at Reformation Sunday. We're like, yeah, Luther, what a guy. And he was a guy. He was quite a guy by God's grace. But we sing these words And maybe we even believe them, but let me tell you, you can't really feel the power in those words until you've actually had to do it. To say goodbye to your family, your friends, your house, your pets. Some of you are chuckling at pets, but I tell you the truth, when our family was getting ready to go overseas, one of the questions that our kids asked, what's going to happen to Phoebe, our dog? We weren't going to take her along because in the country where we were going, they sometimes eat dogs. But that was a real concern. What are we going to do with our pets? What about most of your stuff? You can't pack most of your stuff in a big suitcase, so what are you going to do with it? What is it going to be? What's it going to feel like to actually let goods and kindred go? Saying goodbye not just to your stuff, but to your home culture. And also, this is a lot harder than you might think, to your, to your native language. Does that sound comfortable? None of those things are comfortable. But here's the question. What if the pain of that would actually be good for you in ways that you can't imagine right now? What if, if like having that that arm that was broken the wrong way, what if serving as a missionary could actually heal you in ways that you didn't even know that you were broken and needed healing? What if, friends, what if our hearts are like the arm in the imaginary scenario? What if each of our hearts whether we realize it or not, are damaged from our very earliest days and they are unable to be fixed or healed unless they're re-broken. And this isn't just like abstract theology. This is actually something that our family lived through. We didn't realize before we were called to go live overseas, even for a brief time, we didn't realize how much was actually wrong with our hearts. And there were lots of things that were actually deeply broken inside of us simply because we grew up living the the standard, comfortable American life. The same life that I imagine most of you are living right now. You don't think there's, well, well, there's nothing wrong with me. My life's going pretty well. I submit to you that that's not true. That growing up in a very comfortable place, in a very comfortable time, fosters all sorts of bad things in our hearts. And the, the, the thing is, we don't even realize it. And this was true of us even though we had already made some sacrifices to go into ministry. I was already a pastor. We had done a church plant. That's not exactly as easy as it looks. We had, we had faced some cost just in serving the Lord here, but we had, we had no cognizance of all that was going to happen to us when we decided and we were called to go overseas. So the cost was actually very, very high, very sustained, very painful, but I would do it all over again if I had the opportunity. And if I had the power, I would do it to each and every one of you. So I am the guy that's standing here today saying, not I want to hurt you, but I want God to hurt you. I want God to hurt you in good ways. I want God to hurt you and wound you in ways that will transform you forever because Jesus is worth it. If I could give one gift to every Christian in the world today, 
it would be to give them the opportunity to, to let goods and kindred go, thinking you're going to be there for the rest of your life, even if you're not, so that you really have to go through the spiritual transformation and the cost of missionary service. These, they, they, are, they are wounds, they hurt, but they are good wounds, and the pain is good for you. So today I want to talk about four lessons that my family learned to varying degrees, depending on who of, which of us you ask. Four lessons that we learned in going overseas. And I'm going to be honest about how it hurt, but I also want to be honest about how that pain was good for us and would be good for you as well. And so these, these four things, of course, kind of the four big lessons, and I'll dig into each of them. First is that serving as a missionary exposed our idols. Probably in your church, like in our church, we talk a lot about the good things that we turn into God things, the idols that grow in our hearts. Well, serving overseas really exposed our idols. Secondly, serving as a missionary, as missionaries really refocused our priorities about life, and those things have stayed with us. Thirdly, they enlarged our vision of God's work in the world. And then finally, it expanded our love for Jesus. So let's, let's talk about those four things, and I want to start firstly by talking about how serving as a missionary exposed our idols. If I ask you, what are some of the... Well, let me ask it this way. When you think of the word idol, when you hear the word idol, what's kind of the first thing that comes to mind? What's an idol? When you think, like I say the word idol, what, what image pops into your head? Say again? Okay, so a Buddha. And actually they have a lot of those very large ones in the country where we served. Rhiannon. Okay, like a golden statue, sometimes with lots of weird arms and weird faces. Right. Okay. So those idols are usually made out of precious metals, aren't they? Like gold or like silver. Even in the Bible, the idols were often fashioned out of gold and silver. Why was that? Why didn't they just like make them out of clay? I mean, sometimes they do. But why would they, why when they could, why would they make them out of what was precious, Aiden? It made them worth more, right? So an idol is not just, not limited only to statues of, of false gods, but it's anything that becomes supremely important in our lives. So even in the United States, where we all are living now, are there idols in our culture? And I don't just mean if you go to a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple or an Islamic mosque. Are there idols in our culture? What are some of the idols of our culture? Okay, uh, Jocelyn. Autonomy, right? Being my own, being in charge of my own life. Aiden, what else? Money, okay. One more, yes, young lady. Technology, right. And then in the back, video games, all right, entertainments, right. Aiden, okay, one more. Sports, okay. Very good. So what the interesting thing about these things is it are, Jocelyn's may be the exception, autonomy. But with the exception of autonomy, these other things that were mentioned, are they intrinsically bad? Is it intrinsically bad to, to use technology or to enjoy sports? I hope not. But this is the thing about idols. An idol is a, an, I, the strongest idols are the good things that really turn into God things. That's what makes them most dangerous. And so I want to talk to you today about four idols that are common in all of our hearts that are not intrinsically bad, but when they become more important than serving Jesus, they become dark, deep idols in our hearts. 
And the first of these is, and all of these are like, these are like the four, four, four of the great false gods of American culture. The first of these is the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort. Is it wrong to want to be comfortable? I mean, we have the air conditioning on today so that we can be comfortable. We're bringing food for you later so that you don't feel any pangs of hunger. This is all about keeping us comfortable. The pews here are padded. Comfort is not intrinsically bad, but comfort can become an idol when it becomes an obstacle to serving the Lord. One of the, one of the questions that we were asked when we started telling people that we knew um, six years ago now that we were, we were considering going overseas to serve the Lord as missionaries, one, one of the first questions we got was, why do you want to leave your amazing house? You've got this great home. You've got this, this cool place. We had an acre with like one-third. It was trees. We had a nice house, plenty of space, good shade, nice quiet street. Why do you want to leave your house? It's so great. Interesting that we got that from Americans, and then we were living overseas. I showed somebody a picture of our old house. They're like, why did you ever leave that house? So, this idol of comfort, well, what's, what's the assumption when somebody says, why would you ever want to leave your, your, your amazing house? Well, the assumption there is that the goal of human existence is a comfortable life. Is that true? Is that what God made us for, just to be comfy, cozy? No, that's not what God made us for. And that idol of comfort, it can actually have many, many faces. It's not just the obvious things, not just things like a house or food or stuff. People and places can become idols as well. We had lots of comforts, but you know, some of the hardest things take that off. Thank you. Some of the hardest things for us to leave were not the physical things, but actually the intangible things, the people, places. We had to leave our church, loved our church, our friends, our community. We were, only a, we were less than an hour from the grandparents for our kids. That was really hard to give up. Prosperity, comfort, can be a major idol, and it can be a major obstacle to serving Jesus. C.S. Lewis had a good word on this. How many of you have read the Screwtape Letters? I know if you're here at Covenant, you just did a Sunday school, les- Sunday school class on it. Do you remember in the Screwtape Letters where, where they say, Prosperity knits a man or a woman to the world. He feels that he is, quote, finding his place in it, while in reality it is finding its place in him. You never realize, my friends, we we didn't realize just how strong a grip stuff had on us until we were actually asked to give it up. We, 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 we all, you know, we were, we were a family in ministry, of course. We're Christians. We, we know that, that God is more important than stuff. We would never let things come in the way of following Jesus. And then all of a sudden we were asked to basically cash out our house, cash out our property. You know, I'm a pastor. I had a lot of books. You know how much, I gave up like 75% of my library. Some of them, some of those books I liked. <laughs> It's hard. You don't realize how, much, how strong of a grip your stuff has on you until you have to let it go. But although it was painful, it was good for us because Jesus said, Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So as you're thinking about the theme of our conference, why not you? Why not you be a missionary? 
if, if part of what your, what your heart is saying is, but, but that wouldn't be comfortable, you have to remember what Jesus said. You have to renounce all that you have to be a disciple. You cannot, there may be good reasons why you can't serve as a missionary, but comfort is not one of them. Comfort is not one of them. That's an idol. And that was something that was deeply exposed for us when we were called to go. The second thing, the second idol that was deeply, deeply exposed in our lives was the idol of control. How many of you are firstborn children? Represent. Firstborn children like to be in charge, don't we? Somebody has to rule the world because we can't let the secondborns and God forbid the babies get in charge of things, right? Sorry, it's true. For some of us, it's not so much comfort as the comfort of being in control. How many of you feel most comfortable when you have the clearest idea of what's going on? Right? Again, it's the idol of control. It's a form, a special form of the idol of comfort. And friends, in your home culture, perhaps some of you would say, well, I'm not a control freak. That's my older brother, my older sister. But in your home culture, you have no idea how much control you actually have, even if you're not a firstborn. Think about, think about what you already know how to do. Think about the things that you can take for granted in your home culture. You know exactly how to get food. You know exactly where to go, who to ask. You know exactly where to find clothes. You know at least theoretically where to find money, even if you have to work for it or beg your parents. You, if, you, if you're at the age where you're paying bills, you know how to do that. That's not hard. It may be painful if the bill is high, but you know how to do it. You can, you can, you can operate your life. You are in control in so many ways in your home culture that you don't realize it. But what do you do? What are you supposed to do when you can't speak the language in the place where you land? What are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to get food if you don't have a car? How do you even get to your job or get to the grocery store and back if you don't have a car? What if your cell phone won't work until you get a SIM card, but you don't know the language well enough to buy a SIM card, and you don't have a friend who can help you? We had friends who could help us, but, but when, you, when you don't have that help, it's really hard. You say, well, I'll Google it. Well, what do you do if you're in a country where there is no Google? You say, could there be such a place? Yeah, there are many places in the world where if you get on the Internet, even if you've got that SIM card somehow, you type in Google and it just returns a 404 error because the government blocks it. So what do you do when all of a sudden you're thrust into a situation where all the things that you thought you knew how to do, you can't do anymore? You see, most of us don't realize how much of a control freak we actually are until we have no control. And the thing, that, the thing that's really bad about that is when you feel in control, you are far less likely to trust the Lord. That's the reality. Here's a quick test. How many of you today, even today, if something goes wrong, something, some, some, your plan changes, and, and you're really upset, how many, how many of us, our first instinct is to say, well, I'm going to make a plan to fix it? Don't raise your hand. Okay, yeah, Lisa, me too. Um, it's not necessarily wrong to plan, but isn't it telling that our first instinct is, I will fix this rather than I will pray about this? Isn't that telling? Because we're so habituated to being in charge and in control, to know how to run the game in our home culture, that we just don't have a well-developed sense of trusting the Lord. How many of us ever struggle to be consistent in our prayer life? Why is that? 
because we feel like our lives are so good, our lives are so much in control that we really don't need to ask for so much help. Maybe if there's an emergency, I'll throw one up. Maybe if somebody's sick, I'll, ask for, I'll, I'll pray to the Lord. Certainly there's nothing wrong praying for somebody who's sick. But what about just our regular daily lives? One of the reasons I submit to you that we struggle to be consistent in prayer is because we have this hidden assumption in our hearts that I really don't need to because I've got this. Well, being thrown overseas was a wake-up call for us. We didn't speak the language. We studied a little. We didn't speak it well. Uh, we didn't have a car. We needed help to do everything. Even paying my bill could be, could be very interesting, you know, paying my electric bill. And, and um, you know, some of our friends helped us, you know, okay, they took us around, okay, here's how you pay your bill. And, and as you're learning the language a little bit, you sort of memorize the phrases, okay, I need to go up to this counter and I need to say this thing, and I need to give them money. So you go up to the counter and you say, I'm going to pay this. And you say it in the language and then they start talking to you. And all of a sudden you're, you've lost control again. It's unsettling. But it was also really good for us. Painful, yes. Makes you feel stupid when you can't speak the language. But it also taught us to trust the Lord. So exposing your idol of control. All of you have one, I guarantee it. Giving up that idol, having it crushed would actually be the best thing that could ever happen to you. It would really be good for you. That's another thing that happened to us. The third idol, this is another big one here in American culture, is the idol of safety. One of the things that you'll so often hear people pray for is, pray that so-and-so would be safe. Pray that this or that event would be safe. Now, is it wrong to want things to be safe? No, I mean, we, we came here today hoping that we would have a safe conference. We're going to have food later, and we hope that that food will be safe and not poisoned. Um, we're going to go to Helki later, and, and we hope that we'll have some, some games and, and, and fun time that's, that's safe. We don't want people to get hurt. But safety is something that can also be an idol. Uh, Pastor Patton mentioned this earlier, but this is a great, great anecdote from the, the life of, of John, John Payton when he was preparing to go overseas, people were trying to get him to stay. And that one famous man says, but John, you'll be eaten by cannibals. I can't remember. Did you tell him how Peyton responded? He says, but you'll be eaten by worms. Do we have any abiding safety in this life? Even if you live the most comfortable, insulated life here in America, unless Jesus comes back before, the, before you hit age 300, what is inevitably going to happen to you? You're going to die. Your body is going to deteriorate to the point where your soul will leave your body. And so while long life and a comfortable life can be a blessing of God, you must never ever allow safety to impede following Jesus. And so if the Lord is calling you, or you feel that He might be wanting you to think about it, and you're starting to think through, well, are there any good reasons to say no? You cannot use safety as a reason to say no to the missionary call. What did Jesus say? Again, these are just words of Jesus, not my words, the words of Christ. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then one of the most haunting questions ever asked. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Notice that Jesus doesn't say you, 
it's impossible to gain the world. You actually can. And in fact, if you're living in America, if you're just born in an average American family, you've already gained like three quarters of the world. You know the average American is, is more well-off than like 83% of the global population? When the Bible talks about the warnings to the rich, you are the rich, we are the rich, just by being born in this culture. Even if you say, well, I'm not a rich American, it doesn't matter. By being an American, you are richer than three-quarters, more than three-quarters of the world. And so, you may have legitimate reasons not to be a missionary. There are some out there. But if somebody says, but that would be dangerous, I shouldn't go. Can't use that one. Safety is an idol if it impedes following Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we're stupid in how we operate as missionaries. In fact, Mr. McCabe, who's here today, remembers a time whenever, um, because the situation got too, too dangerous in the country where he served, there was a need to have his family evacuated for a time. So we're not reckless, but you cannot use safety as an idol or as an obstacle to serving the Lord. The last idol that I want to talk about that is exposed when you go to become a missionary, this is a big one. This is maybe the most subtle of the four, is the idol of home. Now, it's a wonderful thing to have a home. It's a wonderful thing to have a place where you're consistently living in, a place where you know the community, a place where you know the trees, where you know the yard, the neighbors. That the desire for rootedness, that desire to be in a place and to know a place and to be committed to a place is not intrinsically wrong, but it can become one of the most deadly idols of all. And it's wired into us from birth, and in our culture particularly, reinforced by books, by movies, by music. Think about the phrase, the American dream. How many of you have heard that phrase? What does the American dream mean? Who can tell me? What's the American dream? Go ahead. What's the American dream? Well, that's, a con- that's the Constitution. That's maybe part of it. But when, when somebody says, I want the American dream for my family, what are they really saying? What are they looking for? Yes, young lady. Right, good job, nice house, couple kids. And when I was growing up, they would say, and the white picket fence, right? The little house in the country or the little house in the suburbs, you know, nice little half-acre lot, crisp grass, with no dandelions growing. How many of you kill your dandelions with chemicals? Do you really? I'm, our house is the only one in our whole neighborhood where the dandelions grow. They probably hate us, but I like the dandelions. And it's not a golf course. It's a, it's a yard. Anyway. But that idol of, of the American dream, it's, it's, sort of, it's, put, it's put before us from very early years, like this is what you should strive for. This is what you should go for, the 2,500-square-foot the home, the nice little dog, the fence, um, and stay in the same place, stay in the same community. That desire, the American dream. And there are variations of it, right? Some people want to have a, like a really hip apartment in the city. Some people are more for the agrarian dream, where they've got the nice country, country estate where they can hide from their neighbors sometimes. Sometimes your neighbors really do need to be hid from, or at least you feel that way. Those kind of things, even the the songs that we hear at Christmas, and we're only about, what, 30 days away from the endless Christmas music cycle, and there's no place like what for the holidays? 
No place like home for the holidays. You'll get so sick of that song by the time Christmas comes. But in the meantime, it's being pumped into your soul that home is what's important. Home is what matters the most. And I've already said it's not a wrong desire. It's, it's a good desire, but it is hijacked. It's hijacked and turned into an idol by a hidden assumption. And that hidden assumption is that home is a place in this age of the world. That home is a place in the here and now. For people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, do we have a home that lasts forever? Yes, we do. Where is that? Where is that home? It's like Presbyterian kids. You can't even talk at a youth conference. Where is that home? Heaven, the new creation. Right. Right. It was hard. It's hard to say goodbye to your home. In fact, the, for me personally, now, if you ask different members of my family, they would have a different answer to this question. But for me, the hardest moment in becoming a, um, serving overseas as a missionary was saying goodbye to my parents in the airport because that was more than a place, more than a, a house. For me, home was a place where I could get to my parents. That was very difficult. But again, what does Jesus say to us? He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read to you some verses that I think are just very important to remember. As you think about how the Lord may be working in your life. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Now we're kind of jumping right into the middle here of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a chapter that talks about the faith of believers, both especially in the Old Testament. Old Testament Christians, people who were looking forward and trusting Jesus, looking to the promise of His future coming. It's talking about how they lived in this world. And it says in verse 13 that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. There you have it right from, again, from the words of Scripture themselves. We may, all of us, have some sort of hometown, but where is our true hometown? The city that is to come. We all have a, a home culture, a homeland, if it were, is, as it were. But where is our true country? It's the heavenly country. That needs to be something we remember. Home is one of the deepest idols. You hear it all the time, even young, young people that are, that are looking to buy their first home or their second home, and they'll say, well, I'm really looking for my forever home. You realize if you say that about a house, even the nicest house in this world, you are, you're just confessing that I'm worshiping something that ought not to be worshiped. Our true home is in the world to come. 
So, all of these things, comfort, control, safety, home, all of these things are very painful to have exposed. It's really hard to realize that you've turned any one of these things into an idol. But isn't it also a good thing? Shouldn't we want to be free from our idols? So that was the first lesson. The the next three are much quicker. The second thing that we learned serving overseas was that it refocused our priorities. Friendship is something that we thought we understood when we lived in this culture. We thought we understood friendship before we left the United States. How many of you enjoy friends? Like everybody. It's kind of a stupid question. I'm just trying to get you to flow some blood into your brains, right? But here in America, it's really easy to treat friendship lightly. How many of you have ever had the experience of somebody you thought was your friend and then they threw you under the bus? That's really hard, isn't it? Because here in, here in, in Western society, friendships are easily acquired, they're easily, uh, easily replaced, minimally maintained. Friendship, in some sense, is cheap because it's so plentiful. But let me tell you, when you live in a place where very few people speak your language, very few people come from the same home culture, you have far fewer options, in other words, you start to really value those people who are in your life with whom you have a deep uh, commitment and a regular community. And in fact, it's interesting that they might not even be like you that much. You might find the people that you end up being friends with overseas as missionaries may not be people that you would have ever been friends with here in your home culture because you're just not that much alike. But in serving the Lord, you get a new priority. What is friendship really about? It is community, communion, following Jesus together, even if we don't like the same sports team. In fact, one of some of the most amusing moments in our life overseas was when Penn State would play Ohio State, and we would have somebody in the States record it for us, and then we would do like a media blackout, and we'd get together and watch it. And you're sitting there with people that you're working with, you're friends with, but they're rooting for the wrong team. Ever had that experience? And of course, OSU lost both times, blah, blah, blah. But (laughs) the reality is, you learn something more about the value of friendship when you have to serve overseas. So if you go to be missionaries someday, you will have to leave behind a lot of your friends, and that's going to be painful. But let me say two things. Number one, that pain is proof that the friendship was real in the first place. That has a value. And number two, the Lord is not going to leave you empty-handed. Jesus said this, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You may think I could never leave my friends. I could never leave them behind. But you actually can. Jesus will help you. And on the other side of the world where you're going, you'll make, you'll make friends and you'll, you'll know people that you would never have met otherwise. And that means your eternity will be richer because you have friends from every culture. So it taught us a lot about the value of friendship. It also taught us a lot about the value of worship. You know, one of the great scandals of the church in the United States and in Western countries in general is just how little people value being able to go to worship God on Sundays. So often, um, people will skip worship for ridiculous reasons. 
sporting event, going to a movie, something like that, going to do something else. We have almost 200 members in this congregation here at Covenant, and we almost never have all of them here. Now, there are legitimate reasons why people miss worship. They're sick, they're traveling, they're living in another place for college or for work or something like that. But there are a lot of illegitimate reasons why people miss worship. And here in the United States where worship is free, you can freely assemble, it costs you nothing to come, people don't value it nearly as much as they should. But if you ever serve the Lord overseas, even in a short-term capacity, and you see brothers and sisters who are literally risking everything to go to worship, they're risking their jobs. Because if they get caught going to church by the police, the police might show up at their office on Monday and tell their boss they're part of an illegal religious cult. If they get caught going to worship with foreigners, they might be, they might be accused of being collaborators with spies. People that will risk their freedom, people that will risk their job, people that will risk their family. Just to go and worship God, it changes how you view worship forever. If you could just sit one time, this, again, this is like one of these gifts I just wish I could give to all of you here who haven't experienced it. If you could just sit one time in the basement of an apartment building with people who have to gather in the basement for worship because they might get caught otherwise, but they are committed to being there, and there's no escape hatch, right? There's one set of stairs. If the police come down those stairs, you ain't getting out. And yet they said to themselves that day, Jesus is worth it, I'm going. If you could just sit once with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it would change you forever. You, wouldn't, you might not understand a word of the worship service because you don't speak the language, but just seeing them, you would, you would treat worship in new ways. I guarantee it. And I wish I could give that to all of us here, even if you never go overseas. The first Sunday we were back in the United States, it was just very moving for our family that we went to church and we didn't have to think about, what if the police come? Probably most of you have never even thought about that, going to church on Sunday. What if the police come and dad loses his job? What if the police come and, and mom gets pulled, in, pulled away and thrown in jail? What if the police come and I can't go to my school anymore? That really happens. There are lots of places in the world where that's the reality. Serving as a missionary helped us learn to understand the value of worship. Third lesson we learned is that serving as a missionary enlarged our vision of the world. It grew us in, in faith, it grew us in hope, and it grew us in love. It grew us in faith just because we had to, to learn to live with uncertainty. If I ask you, what, is, what does faith mean? What would you say? Who could give me a, like a, just a quick definition of faith? Anybody want to give it a shot? Ava, are you raising your hand? Okay. Okay, Ava. Okay, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? Faith is, look, is resting something important, resting your heart on something you can't actually get a hold of right now, right? You are, you are leaning, you are resting, you are depending on the promises of God. Again, we all say, if we're Christians, we all say, oh yeah, I believe the promises of God. But how many of us actually have to put those things to the test? When you actually have to live day by day with uncertainty, when you have to live with the reality that at any given time, the police could come knocking on your door and you'd be told you've got 24 hours to get out of the country, it changes you. You start to understand a little more about what faith is. You start to feel the faith that you believed. 
And we had a number of friends. We were never in that situation where we were kicked out. Uh, but we had a number of friends who were told they had to leave. And you get these messages saying, oh, we're moving. Come look at our stuff because people were being kicked out. This is a reality. It's a reality of, of missionary service. But that greater uncertainty, some of you say, I could never live with that. My friends, you could live more with that because you would be living by faith. In our early days overseas, uh, one of the responsibilities I had every Saturday was to, was to walk from my apartment down the hill into the city into another apartment that was being rented so that we could teach Bible studies. Now, here's the thing. We would hand out invitations, or our teammates would hand out invitations to these Bible studies to, to basically anybody. Now, they weren't called Bible studies. They were called English lessons, right? But handing out, you never knew who was going to knock on that door to come for an English lesson. You didn't know whether they were somebody really wanted to learn English, whether they might be an English student who was also perhaps an informer for the government, or whether the knock could come at the door and it was a police officer who had, who had come across. Now, that never happened to me. But the thing was, it could happen, and there's really no plan B. You're sitting there with a whiteboard. It's, it's supposed to be an apartment. You're sitting there with a whiteboard. You've got Bible materials sitting around you. If they come, you're caught. <laughs> there, there, there's no explaining this away. And it was scary to walk down that hill every Saturday morning. But you know what? I also learned a lot about what it meant to trust Jesus in those moments because I had to. There was nothing else to trust. I couldn't trust my ability to talk my way out of the situation. I couldn't trust that I could call my dad who was a police officer and he might help me out. My dad's not there. It's a different country. You had to learn to trust Jesus. It grew our faith and it could grow yours. It also grew our hope. It gave us a larger view of God's work in the world. Um, when, when one place is all you know, when you've only ever lived in one place, your, your view of the world, whether you realize it or not, is very small. And you may think, well, I read the news, so I know about what's going on in America, and I know what's going on in the rest of the world. Until you've, until you've walked the streets of a different place, your, your, your view of the world is just so small. Going overseas, serving the Lord as a missionary will enlarge your vision of the world. When we lived overseas, we could think about life in America, and now that we live in America, we think about life overseas. It's a reminder to us, uh, one writer put it like this, I'm going to quote to you from a book, it said, no matter where you are, no matter what is in front of you, there is always more than meets the eye. Somewhere else where life is also happening, some other place where people are living, smiling, crying, and sliding toward eternity. For believers in Jesus, it is a reminder to us that God's work extends well beyond the bounds of our peripheral vision. It's one of the great blessings of serving as a missionary is that that happens to you. The last thing it enlarged in terms of our vision was it enlarged our love for the strangers and the aliens, even in our home culture. When I was a kid, if, you, if I ran across somebody from a different culture or different nationality or ethnicity, I didn't have a lot of sympathy because I just all, my my only thought was they're different, and that made me uncomfortable. But then I had to live for a couple years in a culture where I was never allowed to forget that I was different. We'd go out in public and people would be pointing. They'd be taking pictures with their camera. They'd be videotaping you on the on the subway. They'd, they'd pretend like they're checking their makeup, but they're going like this toward you. You you were never allowed to forget that you were different. And that experience really teaches you something especially if you grow up in the majority culture in your, homes, in your home country. It teaches you what it's like to be a minority, what it is to be a foreigner in a small way. 
teaches you to be more sympathetic toward the strangers and the aliens in your own country. So all these things were hard. It was hard to leave friends. It was hard to, lose, to leave our church. It was hard to live with all that uncertainty. It was hard to, to um, be pointed out all the time as a foreigner. But all those things were good because they grew us as well. Last thing, last lesson. Serving as a missionary expanded our love for Jesus. The reason I say that is because it enabled us to taste a little bit of his own experience. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus cross a cultural barrier, a cultural border in coming into this world? In coming down from heaven to save us, did Jesus cross a border? Did he cross a culture? Of course he did. He was the greatest cross-cultural move that was ever made in the history of the world. When Jesus came into this world to save us, did he surrender comfort, control, and his home for a time? Yeah, of course. What could be a more comfortable place than heaven? What would be more, what, 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 who's more in control of everything than God? And yet we're told in Philippians, when Jesus came into the world, he, for a time, set aside his glory. And he experienced hunger. He experienced, experienced pain. He experienced betrayal. Did Jesus ever use his power to take a shortcut to make his life more comfortable? Never did. Never did. Remember Satan said, turn the, bread and, turn the stones into bread. Jesus said no. Jesus also showed us what it means to trust his Father, what it means to hope for his people, what it means to love his neighbors. Why did Jesus go to the cross? In hope of saving us. When Jesus was on the cross and he said to his Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what was he doing? He was trusting his Father. He was learning about faith, experiencing and exercising faith in the, in the, sense of un, in the, in the situation of, of real terror. Whenever, why did Jesus do all this? He did it out of love for the stranger, and that stranger is you and me. We were alienated by our sin from our God, but Jesus crossed the ultimate cultural border to rescue us. He gave up all those things that you'd be asked to give up as a missionary. And if you follow him, take the cross, and serve as a missionary overseas, you will get a taste, creaturely taste, an imperfect taste, but you will get a taste of the life and the ministry of our Lord that you will never get in any other way. And so all I'm saying here in conclusion is that the pain that you would experience, the cost that you would pay as a missionary is actually also the greatest privilege because it's going to draw you further up and further into the goodness of Christ. And so I want you to go away from this talk today not asking the question when you're thinking about like, should I consider missions? Should I be open to this? I loved how Pastor Patton ended by saying, the big prayer is just, are you willing to be open? As you're thinking about whether you could pray that prayer, the question should not be, but will it hurt? It will hurt, I promise you. But it'll hurt like heaven. The question should be, not will it hurt, but is the pain going to be worth it? Will it do good things in my life? Will it enable me to truly pass the test by God's grace of letting goods and kindred go? Jim Elliott, missionary martyr to Central America, put it like this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I would do it all over again. I think it's one of the greatest gifts that the Lord ever gave to our family was the gift of the pain and the cost of being a missionary. And if I could, I would give each of that gift, give each of you that gift. 
I don't have that power, but God does. And so the question should be, are you willing to receive this gift? Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you for each and every one of these young persons here to think about what it might mean to serve you on the mission field. I do pray that you would give them each wisdom and discernment. Give them open hearts. Lord, they still have a lot of years left in front of them. Many of them have a lot of years left before they really need to choose a vocational direction for their lives. Father, I pray that, that even now, though, they would all be at a point where they're coming to the point where they could say, Lord, if you want me to go, I'll go. And just be open to your call. Please let not any of these idols stand in the way, but rather show them through your goodness. And even through what we've discussed today, there is so much to be gained that the pain is good for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, discussion groups. The leaders have the questions, and we are going.